Hello, friends. We're here in La Vital Core Salon. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Snyder. And I'm always trying to introduce you to guests who can share some of their lessons around successfully navigating bullshit and hopefully sidestepping burnout throughout their careers. Orbiting the salon this time, I want you to meet Alice Bowman. Alice is a member of the principal professional staff at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory, also known as APL, and that's down in Laurel, Maryland. Alice is the Space Mission Operations Group Supervisor and the NASA New Horizons Mission Operations Manager, or acronym-wise, a mom at work. Also, and incredibly noteworthy, Alice is the first ever woman in that role. With her New Horizons team and the spacecraft itself, she's been part of two historic, most distant flybys ever conducted, one past Pluto and one past Ultima Thule in the Kuiper Belt. For all of you working remotely on Zoom, think about this. The spacecraft part of Alice's team is now more than 4 billion miles from Earth, and she has to communicate with it. Of course, we're going to talk about space exploration in this episode, but we're also going to talk about what has to happen on Earth to make it all come together and the lessons that Alice has learned along the way. So voila, meet Alice. Hi, Alice. Welcome to La Vital Core Salon. Hi, Kara. Nice to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. And I know like here we are recording you're used to talking to things like three billion miles away, but sadly, I'm, I'm just here in the Catskills. <laughs> <laughs> well, that should make it a lot easier. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Let's hope all the children in my neighborhood aren't streaming every video game known to man while we talk today. <laughs> here we are recording, you know, a week or so after Mother's Day, and it's not lost on me that you are a professional mom. And that's a a mission operations manager at APL. What is that? And what does that mean functionally? Um, Okay, so it's exactly what it sounds like, a mission operations manager. And um, what I do is manage the operations team that takes care of our spacecraft, which is called New Horizons. And we do many things. We keep that spacecraft healthy. Um, We develop all the activities, uh, schedule all the activities that happen on the spacecraft. We set up the communications with the spacecraft, so both sending the spacecraft information and bringing data or telemetry down to Earth. And um, whenever there is a problem on the spacecraft, we're the team that leads that effort to fix it. So this cannot be a small job. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I made it sound kind of small and, um, (laughs) you know, pretty straightforward, but um, you're right. Every day is different. We always hope for those boring days when we can go about our normal routine, Um, but uh, some days they're not not normal and we uh, experience some, some hiccups or some things that we didn't expect. So for people listening that aren't quite as familiar with New Horizons, can you talk a little bit about the spacecraft and the mission and the significance of it? Sure. 
So New Horizons is a mission, it's a NASA mission to study the Kuiper Belt. Um, Pluto is a member of the Kuiper Belt. It's actually the largest object in the Kuiper Belt that we've discovered so far. Um, this uh, mission was really a long time coming. The last visit to our uh, planets was um, Neptune in 1989, and that was by the Voyager spacecraft. And so um, there's long been a push from our scientists to go out and explore Pluto, get up close and personal and see what Pluto was all about. So this mission um, was proposed to NASA in the year 2001. Um, we were funded in 2002. We launched the spacecraft in January of 2006. We used Jupiter as a gravity assist in 2007. And what that means is that we flew that spacecraft um, at a certain distance from Jupiter in order to gain speed from Jupiter's gravitational force. And that allowed um, the spacecraft to reach Pluto three years earlier than it would have if we had not used Jupiter as a gravity assist. We reached, um, Pluto closest approach in uh, July of 2015, so July 14th. And then it took us about 16 months to return all the data that we collected in uh, that closest approach period, which we define as a, a nine day period where the most scientifically rich observations are taken. At Pluto closest approach, we were 3 billion miles from Earth. We used light waves to communicate with the spacecraft and at a distance that far out, which is 32 AU, and 1 AU is 93 million miles. Because an AU is basically oh. the distance from the Earth to the sun, right? Like that's the standard unit? Yes, it's the average distance from the Earth to the Sun, and it takes a photon from the Sun eight minutes to travel to the Earth. So um, what this means is that uh, for when we send commands or instructions to the spacecraft that's at Pluto, it's going to take a little less than four and a half hours to get there, to get to that spacecraft. And then it's going to take that same amount of time for the signal to come back from the spacecraft to us on Earth, telling us that it received those instructions or to send data back from the spacecraft, same, same sort of thing. So it's, I think that puts into perspective how very, very far away Pluto is and how vast our solar system and the universe is. It's sort of hard to hold that in my head, actually. Like, I, I think... It was so helpful when I was doing research for this show that like APL and NASA, a lot of their information, they have sort of like the grown-up sound bites and then they have like it translated for children. And I found those <laughs> like really, really helpful to kind of think about like the magnitude and the vastness and almost the nebulousness of what we're talking about. Yes, definitely, because you're, you're really getting signals. Those are the only tangible things you're getting from the spacecraft. And you just have to um, get it 
kind of in your head that there really is a robotic spacecraft that you built on Earth out there at Pluto and now beyond Pluto. And it's actually, you know, sending you back information. It is sometimes really hard to wrap your head around that. How did you get used to it? I mean, because correct me if I'm wrong, you studied chemistry and physics, right? Like when you come out of those programs, is it natural and like easier to, to comprehend this kind of stuff than it is for me as say like a laywoman kind of just taking this all in in high level bits and blobs? <laughs> Perhaps, you know, I guess with any kind of scientific study, if you're studying the really, really small or the really, really big, far out kind of things like space exploration, when you get to a certain point, like when you're stuttering viruses or, or little things on the molecule or atomic level, you're basically can't see that atom or charged particle very clearly, except by the data that is resulting from your experiments. And it's the same thing with, um, I think of it as the same thing, when you're exploring space, places very far away from Earth, you have to rely upon those numbers to paint that physical picture in your mind. Got it. So there must be a lot of data visualization happening in your office yes. most of the time. Yes, yes. Um, but I, I confess that when I look at all the commands that are going to the spacecraft, I do it line by line. And I'm looking not quite on the, the bit level, but maybe a few steps above that where I'm looking at lines of commands. Um, I'm not using a visual visualization program. Some people do. Um, I'm kind of old school. <laughs> um, I grew up in the era when you typed in the command line on your computer. So, you know, everybody does it a little bit different, but there is a lot of modeling and simulation and visualization that goes on. Um, in our our day to day work in the spacecraft. So when you say you're looking at at sort of all the command lines, just for comparison, is that sort of like looking at code? You know, whether yes. it's like for a website code or or things like that, it's going to be in its own sort of language and logic and all of that, and that's how you're reading things. Yes, sort of. I'm not looking at the if then statements, but I'm looking at. Um, the results, the data that comes out when you run that code. Um, so the things that are going to go to the spacecraft uh, main computers and be accepted by them. Okay, got it. And then in terms of like, you know, you gave a really concise timeline, which I think is so super helpful for this conversation. You know, you talked about like, this starts as an idea in, in terms of a project, is that when a mom comes in to the project or do you come in when it's more online? With any NASA project, um, there are different phases. First you have the scientists that um, think about what questions they wanna have answered. What, what are these outstanding curiosities or wonders that they have? And um, this is usually put together in what they call a decadal study. And these define the, the top priorities of what the scientists think we should be focused on in the next 10 years. And um, 
so it starts with the scientists with these questions and then it goes into the um, design phase where you get the engineering team involved and so I view my job as on the engineering side so we have these things that the scientists want to accomplish and it's up to the engineers to figure out how we can um, put together a spacecraft that would accomplish these objectives. So um, in the design phase, we are trying to, as an engineer, trying to figure out how to best accomplish that. And then when we move into the post-launch phase, then we're um, trying to make sure that the um, operation of the spacecraft components are supporting those science objectives. Got it. So you move into the the sort of flow of things. And I say flow like that's a smooth line, but as a UX designer, I'm, I'm guessing that it is iterative and messy yeah. and sort of a squiggle. Yeah. <laughs> if yep. we had to graph it out. So you come in at that phase more as like the, the engineering side and kind of subject matter expert to kind of start working on the how. Like, how do we get this thing? So the, the project is already shaped with kind of like where its focus is going to be. And then you're the more tactical implementation side of the process. Yes. Yes. Got it. I can only imagine how many meetings and how much that takes to just move that whole project forward. Oh, it's amazing how many meetings. Um, you know, uh, communication is essential to um, a good project. And um, meetings are one of the vehicles where you can accomplish that. But I tell you, sometimes the number of meetings is crushing. Um, they're necessary, but uh, there are a lot of meetings. I can't even imagine, because how many people are you talking about? Like by the time you come into the process, like how many people make up the, the, the team at this point? At this point, it's not, uh, the number of people on the team is, is not very large just because um, we have passed our primary objective, which is uh, imaging and doing the first reconnaissance or first visit of Pluto. Our extended mission um, objective was to perform a reconnaissance of a very small Kuiper belt object, which we did which we accomplished on January 1st, 2019, and that was flying by Arakoth. And now we are in that phase where we're bringing down the data. So um, the team size is probably mm, maybe less than 100. Um, and I'm talking about the whole team, uh, the okay. scientists, the engineers. And um, when I say that, that's, you know, full-time kind of people. So we have people working us you know, half time or quarter time, and it coming in at different parts of this period in the mission, depending on what we're working on at one time. But when we were designing the spacecraft and building it, I can't quite exactly remember how many, but it was probably a thousand people, and that would, was the whole team. Um, for mission wow. operations, yeah, a lot. Um, for mission operations um, itself, people that operate that spacecraft do all those things I talked about. Um, we have about 20 at the max, and um, probably during our long cruise between Jupiter and Pluto, we had maybe 10-ish. And now we are probably right around 12-ish range for staff. 
So it that's going to ramp up and down like as needed. And now you're sort of in, I don't want to, maybe this isn't the right word. I don't mean to downplay it, like maintenance mode, right? Like it's, you've hit the primary achievement that the mission was based around. Then like was the secondary, like like visiting Arakoth or flying by Arakoth, was that something that was built into the original plans or was it something that sort of emerged in the process that like, oh, now that we've accomplished this, we could also reach for this? So visiting a second Kuiper object with Pluto being the first was always something that we wanted to do. But um, the mission was funded uh, primarily in the primary mission phase to fly by the Pluto system collect the data, and bring that down to Earth. And then that primary mission ended. So we had to put in a proposal for an extended mission, which was to fly by a second Kuiper Belt object. So when we first started um, developing this program, it was always the vision that we wanted to propose an extended mission to fly by another object. So um, while we weren't funded initially for it, it was something that we wanted to do. And all this depended upon how much propellant we had left um, after we flew by Pluto and brought all that data down. Propellant is um, what allows us to move the spacecraft to take all these observations. And um, you know, you launch with a certain amount of propellant and um, as you um, do these obser- observations that the gas, you can think of the gas in the tank, that tank is getting emptier and emptier. And um, it means that you don't, right now we don't have as much propellant in our tank. And so the range of where we can find another object to fly by has gotten much smaller because we don't have enough to get to certain places. So we have to be very careful with the resource that we have left. Got it. So it's a it's a very intricate matching of like, we have this much gas in the tank. Where else can we sort of tour in this neighborhood while we're out here? Yeah, exactly. And so you had asked me about the, the kind of phase we're in right now. We are still trying to bring down the data that we collected from Arakoth. Because the spacecraft now is for almost 5 billion miles from Earth, the data rates or the, um, the rate that the data can come to Earth is getting less and less. So the farther we move from Earth, the lower our downlink rate becomes. So it means that it takes us longer to bring down a data set when the spacecraft is, you know, where it is now, almost 5 billion miles, than it did when the spacecraft was at Pluto at 3 billion miles from Earth. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. It also, as a 43-year-old woman, makes me think of, you know, AOL online as like a junior high kid. <laughs> right? <Yes>. Like, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, and, um, I guess maybe for comparison, like, how fast are we talking? Like, if, if we're thinking about, like, what dial-up used to be and you'd have to stand there for, you know, two or three minutes hearing it, like, you know, make all the uh, uh, noises yeah. <laughs> and then finally connect. I mean, are the speeds that we're talking about for New Horizons, is that, like, 
10x is slow, 100x is slow, faster? What does that look like? Um, so I can't quite remember. Let's see. Um, I, re I do remember we had like a thousand baud and the, the top one was like 5,200 and something or other baud. And if you had that internet service or dial-up service, you were, that was smoking. Um, <laughs> the, the spacecraft is much less than that right now. Um, we're at the max that we can get is under a thousand bits per second and that's wow, so using, that is really slow yeah it's very slow and that's using the largest antenna dishes that we have on the ground there are 70 meter dishes that's the diameter they if, if you envision a football stadium that dish would fit inside that football stadium and take up the whole space so that's how huge the dish is on the ground, the antenna dish on the ground. And even Unbelievable. That, yeah. And that's with right now, uh, because we have enough power to turn on both of our transmitters on board the spacecraft, and that essentially doubles the array, the amount of data rate coming down. So when we don't have enough power for that, or we turn one off for some reason, we're at less than 500 bits per second. So it's painfully slow. Wow. So like when it did the flyby of Pluto and then Arakoff, you're just like basically looking for, did it capture what it needed to capture? And then you have to wait weeks, if not months, to actually see what happened. Yes, exactly. Um, that is why if you've looked at that um, video clip online where we were live streaming the uh, communication with the spacecraft after we'd flown by the Pluto system, mm -hmm. and um, you, could, you remember where I was checking in with all, there's a long version where I check in, you can hear me check in with all the subs, engineering subsystem teams, asking them to give me an evaluation of their system. The shortened version just has, I think, autonomy. I'm not sure. When you hear the, um, the gentleman come in from the, who's speaking um, on the main computer, we call it CNDH, which is the Command and Data Handling System. And he says, that um, the recorder is got has, looks like it has the right amount of data on it. And that was our indication that all those observations that we had done had actually worked and were recorded to the, to the spacecraft data recorders. We couldn't tell what was in them, but we could tell that that uh, recorder was um, at the capacity that we expected it to be at. And so that was a huge milestone, as well as the autonomy subsystem engineer when he came back and he said that um, no rules had fired. And what that meant was that we didn't have any kind of um, abnormal condition on the spacecraft that required um, software to take some kind of autonomous action. So it was, it was huge for us, even though that was only a 15-minute contact with the spacecraft. It was huge. It was amazing. So basically, if I was going to translate that into really, if I'm going to really dumb it down here, it sounds like the message was largely 
my memory is full and it's not full of clutter. <laughs> well, I don't think we can say the clutter part. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. But it wasn't, um, it, we didn't just record ourselves talking. We actually got Pluto. <laughs> I guess the podcasting equivalent would be that you got, you got both sides of the conversation. <laughs> yes. Although I, I have to say, um, we don't have insight into the data that's on the recorder. So really the only thing that we could say is that the set of observations that we planned for that nine day or that 24 hour period recorded the amount of data that we expected it to record had those observations happened successfully. Now, I can't, I would not be able to, to say that it was just background noise or anything like that. I, I couldn't say that. So the, you know, the, the chatter or the clatter or the, whatever you called it, I don't know if I could say that. I could just say that it looked like everything was successful. Got it. So it maybe maybe this is a better way to break it down. You had the correct quantity of data. You had you weren't able to evaluate the quality, but you knew that nothing from your end, like when you mentioned the rules firing, nothing that you had used on your end or nothing had happened on your end that would have used or eaten up any of that space. Correct. The, all okay. indications were that the spacecraft executed all those commands as planned and recorded all the data as planned. And if I remember correctly from that video, like everyone's faces were very, very serious and full focus, full, like no one was thinking about having to go to the bathroom or needing a snack. Like everyone was very <laughs> intent and, and focused on what they're doing. And then I felt like there was a moment where I think you smiled in the video, like you cracked a smile. And I think that was my cue watching. I was like, I don't know what what they just said. I can't even translate like what that actually means, but she smiled and I think that's good. <laughs> yeah. And I think I probably took a breath and I, I sat back a little bit in my chair. Um, you know, there was so much tension. Um, and as engineers, we're not used to having all that attention. I mean, we had cameras in the mission operations center of mock. We had dignitaries that were in that room right beside us. And the agreement was that the people in that room beside us couldn't come into the mission operations center until I had finished assessing the health of the spacecraft. And so it was, you know, looking back on it, it was quite surreal. And I think it took me probably six months or more um, until I could look back on what happened or actually watch that video um, without tearing up. You know, I, I couldn't afford to think about it in that way because I knew I would lose it. Um, there's a point in that video where I'm giving the summary to the principal investigator, P.I. Alan Stern, just before he comes into the door. And um, you can see me kind of hesitate there and I I, I think I wet my lips and it was that was the point where I almost lost it um, <laughs> because 
all of a sudden it hit me what we had just accomplished. Because talk about what you were feeling in that moment, or at least trying to hold, trying to hold back from feeling in that moment. Um, you know, we had worked so long, you know, over 10 years and more for some people, so long to get a mission to the Pluto system. Um, we had solved what seemed like insurmountable problems at the time to make this a reality. And, um, you know, we talk about that July 4th event that we had. And so all these things that we had overcome, all of a sudden, instead of working towards our goal, we were actually had flown past the goal and realized success. And it was just really hard to, to comprehend. It was that mind switch, you know? Like, oh my God, we just did it. As someone who likes to check boxes off on pretty much any sort of list I can make for myself. I mean, it's hard for me to even hold in my head now. Like, that would be like having a check mark built out of like, I don't know, what is the heaviest? You're a chemist. What is the heaviest element that we have? And it would be, you know, as big as a planet. And that would be sort of the size and significance of the check mark that you must have been like <laughs> mentally crossing off, right? Um. Yeah, but you know, it was for me at least, and, and maybe others as well. We had been, you know, nonstop from when the spacecraft was uh, launched, working towards getting to Pluto. And um, we had a very small team. So it meant that even though it took us nine and a half years to get there, we were busy, amazingly busy that whole time. And so when all of a sudden we flew by Pluto. We saw that the spacecraft acted just like we wanted to, to act. It had recorded that data, even though we couldn't see it yet. It was like, now what? I mean, it was, it was an amazing sense of accomplishment, but it was almost surreal. Like it was hard to believe that, it, you know, we achieved it because we had been working towards it for so long. And I think now it's easier to look back and say, wow, yeah, what an accomplishment, um, you know, and really accept that into my brain. But in that moment, it was really hard to switch from, you know, the focus of getting there and accomplishing and solving all those problems to, okay, we did it. And it was really hard. And it wasn't always easy. I mean, I guess there's two pieces of information I kind of want to bring in here. One is, I guess we never really talked about like the spacecraft itself, like at a high level, like what does it look like, feel like, how big is it? Just so we can get a sense of, of that. Let me start there sure. before I pile on a bunch of questions, which I want to do. <laughs> And I'll probably forget. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, so this, the New Horizons spacecraft is about the size of a baby grand piano. If you look at a picture of it, you'll see the most prominent feature is that big white dish. And that's the antenna dish. And that's um, about seven feet in diameter. So that kind of gives you an idea of how big it is. You'll see, also notice that it's triangular in shape. 
and it's got this big, um, we like to call it a curling iron sticking out of the back end, <laughs> and that's the um, nuclear power source. It's actually the cooling fans for that power source because the spacecraft, um, if we had built it using solar panels for the power, um, it, those solar panels would have to be huge, the size of a football field. So it was really had to be nuclear power. And one thing we wanted to do is make that spacecraft as lightweight and as small as we could, but yet still accomplish all the scientific objectives. And by the biggest, baddest rocket we could afford, and put that very small spacecraft in that nose cone and shoot it off from Earth at a tremendous speed. Um, 36,000 miles per hour was the speed that um, the rocket left Earth's uh, gravity. And it still holds the record for the fastest man-made object launched from Earth. And the reason why we wanted it this way is because we wanted to get to Pluto as fast as we could, so we wanted as much of that velocity from the rocket to be imported into the um, the speed of the of the spacecraft. And still, at that, it took us nine and a half. And we used Jupiter as a gravity assist. We stole about nine thousand miles per hour from 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 Jupiter. I'm sorry, miles per second from Jupiter. And even at that, it took us nine and a half years to reach that closest approach to Pluto. Unbelievable. So you launched something the size of a baby grand piano into space on a rocket that's one of the fastest things that's ever been launched into space. Then essentially slingshot it around another planet so that it picks up more speed and uses less resources to make a nine and a half year journey to Pluto. You said it perfectly. <laughs> Thanks. I can see why, Alice, that like it took you six months to actually kind of hold all of this in your head, especially like, I mean, I imagine like the granularity of all the things that you were doing, right? Like millions of meetings with, you know, between a hundred and a thousand people at any given point and just the number of emails and communications and, you know, probably Microsoft team updates, like I mean, oh, yeah. like you have to be drowning in information. I mean, I imagine there was also a moment where you were kind of like a gopher. Like how do you get yourself up above all of those details and data to like actually then be able to say, oh, above all this data, we, we did this. Yeah, and it was um, this accomplishment was all due to the team, not – one team member um, was expendable. Everybody, it took everybody doing their job to make this mission successful. And I don't by any means want to take away from that. The mission operations team is pretty diverse. Um, and when I say diverse, I mean not just in gender, but also in background. Um, we have engineers, we have scientists, we have an IT person, I have an astronomer, I even have a person that has a degree in philosophy and history. But what we all share in common is this focused goal of getting a spacecraft, healthy spacecraft to Pluto and beyond and collecting this awesome data that no one has ever seen before. And I think this diversity 
is really what contributed to the huge success of this mission. How do you think it contributed? You know, when, when you have problems in, uh, with a spacecraft that's really far from Earth, you are seeing things for the first time. You're seeing problems for the first time that perhaps other spacecraft never saw. So you don't have a knowledge base to draw upon. When you have a really diverse team, people come to the table with that background and they solve problems differently just by nature of the diverse background. And so what this does is it brings um, different ways to solve a problem to the table. And when you listen to all those things, you end up with a, a much better solution because you can take bits and pieces of all that input and put it into a really successful recovery or, or solving of a problem. And, um, you know, I can't say enough about the team and um, what it contributed and how it made this mission so successful. And Alice, as you say this, what keeps coming up for me is there's probably some lessons about communication that are here. And there's also probably some lessons about focus, right? I mean, it, it, it seems like the environment that you're talking about, like you all were, you know, busting your rumps for years, decades. And to your point, for some folks, even more than that to, to make this thing happen. I mean, I don't know, communication and focus. They're the words that I keep coming back to. Like, are there lessons on either of those fronts that, that you think can be extrapolated for the people listening? Okay, my short answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give us the TLDR version too. <laughs> so let's see, as, um, as the mission ops manager, every single person on my team is important. And I wanna hear all of their voices. So I make it a point, instead of just opening up the table uh, for discussion, for anybody to add anything. I make it a point to ask each person individually if they have anything that they want to add or say. And what this does is it gives that quiet person um, an opportunity to have their voice heard. I think that's one thing. Besides practicing it in the mission ops team realm, we also practice that when we are a larger team trying to resolve or determine a way forward when there's an abnormal condition on the spacecraft. Always, we go around the room and make sure that everybody has spoken any kind of concern or voiced any opinion um, before we decide upon an action. Um, so for me, I think that is probably what I view as maybe the single most important thing, is to make sure that everyone is heard. Is that something you do in a meeting, or is it something you do, like, so I'm someone who volunteers as a mediator, right? And like, I think in a, in a dream scenario, there's, you get to talk to each person involved in the mediation beforehand, like individually, like, hey, what's your take on this? 
but that often happens as part of like an intake before you actually get to the the mediation meeting itself or is that something you're sort of doing on the fly in the meeting um i i wouldn't say that that i'm doing this on the fly this is something that i always do i always do it at the end of the meeting so people normally have spoken up and said you know whatever they're going to say during the meeting but always at the end i go around the room and ask if anybody has anything to add i do it not I, I speak to the person individually, but I do it in the team setting. And that's because one person's idea or statement can spur somebody else to think about something in a different way than perhaps they'd already, that they've been thinking about it. And this invokes a discussion, which is great. That's what you want, this exchange mm -hmm. of ideas. And the only way that you can do that, I think, is to make that environment safe. And when I say safe, I mean, the person knows that they're going to be respected, they're going to be treated as an equal, and there, there won't be any kind of repercussions or anybody saying anything, you know, um, derogatory. Um, so you have to ensure that that environment is safe. So people feel free to speak and discuss. And um, one thing that I always do is when I am wrong, or when I don't understand something, I make sure that I voice that to the team. So by showing my vulnerability, I'm actually saying it's okay. You know, you have an idea, but it may or may not be something we, we go with. But it's okay. Voice it. Put it on the table. That is amazing. Alice, do you have any constraints on how people give feedback? Because I know you mentioned you create a safe space so that people aren't going to voice something that might seem radical or out there, but may end up having something really valid attached to it. Like, how do you create that safety? I, I can only speak for how me as an individual, but when somebody has the floor, I make sure that I am listening deeply to what they are saying. I've pushed away my prejudices because I may have something in my head and I may have already either consciously or subconsciously chosen what path I think is right. But I consciously push away those prejudices so that I can really truly listen to what that person has to say and try to bring it into my brain and understand um, where they're going. And I, I always like to ask questions just to make sure that I understand. And I think what this does is it, you know, it, it's a reinforcement that whatever that person is saying is valid, that it has a place at this table in this discussion. Very cool. And I, I, I feel like this makes me think of like a hundred different things all at once. But one of the things that's really sticking out to me where I can see how what you're doing is so powerful is like, I think about years ago, there was an article. I mean, there's been a lot of articles about like women in the workplace. And that's something I sort of dig into a lot. Like what is, what are, what are some of the gendered behaviors that like that women, you know, have to navigate in, in workplaces and I think it makes me think of an article where, you know, the problem of like when it's a mixed room, women 
we'll put forth an idea and then everyone kind of doesn't really hear it. Like we're just sort of normalized to that in some way or socialized to that. And then when a man repeats it, all of a sudden it becomes like, oh, well, that's a fantastic idea by Bill, even though like two women may have already sort of said that in advance. So I love how you're like making it a point to hear from everyone in the table. And then it also makes me think of, you know, all of those articles around that same topic. Like, I guess one of the things when I was doing research to prepare for this interview was finding out that like you were the first female mom, right? You're the, you're the first woman in your role. And then that, you know, at least at points and maybe still is like 25% of the new horizons team identifies as women. It seems like what you're doing is so incredibly powerful, especially for the environment you're in. I don't know. Can you, can you talk about that? Like, When I was chosen as the mission operations manager, you know, the first, furthest thing from my mind was that I was a woman. Um, I was just excited. Um, I knew it was going to be a lot of hard work. But, you know, I've always been up for a challenge. You know, I think at that time, I was sort of blind to how many women were on a team or, you know, uh, you know, what the diversity was, um, I was really looking at it, uh, looking at um, the makeup of the team as expertise and, you know, you know, hiring the best people for the job. And um, then when these questions, you know, came about, I saw that article, you know, the first woman at APL to become a mission operations manager. Well, that was news to me too. Um, <laughs> I didn't even know that. <laughs> um, it, you know, when I think about it, that, it, that is quite an honor, but, you know, I, I want to be recognized for my expertise and being in a position because I deserve it. And I think everybody does. Um, everybody wants to be recognized uh, for their knowledge and their capabilities. And now as a, a group supervisor, which means that I manage uh, the team at APL that man that operates all the spacecrafts that we have at APL, I am more in tune with making sure to the best of my ability that we have um, diversity across our teams. Um, one thing that um, I and many others uh, at APL are trying to do to, to increase this diversity is doing a lot of outreach. Um, one thing that I have seen when I put out a requisition for a staff member, say on New Horizons, the pool of applicants is not very diverse. And so if you don't have a diverse set of applicants, how in the heck can you have a diverse team? So one thing that we're trying to do is to do a lot of outreach and to make sure that students, college students, elementary, middle school, that students know what these uh, opportunities are and hopefully inspire them to choose a STEM career because we really want to increase the number of people that are in this field so that we get a more um, sampling, a real sampling of the population. 
that we have. Got it. And I imagine even if you didn't realize it at the time when you stepped into that role, I have to think that you are really contributing to making that happen. I think there's a difference between, you know, a nine-year-old girl hearing she can do math and science and send spacecraft into space and then actually seeing a woman doing that, right? It, it okay. feels different. I don't know, like from, from your vantage point, what's, what's been your experience? Yes, exactly what you say. I have just been amazed at... Um, amazed at the people that come up to me and say, you know, thank you for all your work. You've inspired me. It's very humbling to have that someone say that to you. But it's also a validation that what you are doing and how you are acting is having an effect. And it's, it's hopefully breaking down any barriers that people might feel that they have. I think barriers for for people are, are different depending on, on who you are. What do you see as obstacles most commonly that are limiting girls or young women from entering um, STEAM? You know, that is a really hard question um, about what obstacles do I see that are limiting girls in, in STEAM. Um, I can only speak to it from a personal point of view. I know what my obstacles were. Um, I don't know if they're the same ones that um, young people face today. Um, for me, a lot of my lack of self-confidence and hesitation were due to things that I put in front of myself. You know, just take a basic class, you know, oh, this one is too hard for me. I'm not going to take it because, you know, I don't think I can do well. So that's a barrier that you put there for yourself. Um, it's not anything anyone else has put there. You know, and this all comes down to self-confidence. And I think a lot of self-confidence originates from our families. If we have a very supportive family or extended family, I think that um, that lends itself mm -hmm. to someone being more self-confident. Um, and so what I try to, to say to to, to people trying to figure out what they want to do or women that may be a little bit afraid to step into that, that realm of, of STEAM is to, you know, give it a try. If you're interested in it, give it a try. Do something that's outside of your comfort zone. And, you know, who knows, you might like it. Um, for me, I always loved a good challenge. Um, my mom, I, I can remember when I was in college and I was lamenting to my mother that I had so much homework to do and I didn't know if I was going to be able to get it all done. I was going to have to stay up all night. And she said to me, she said, Alice, why do you take all those hard classes? And um, <laughs> it sort of sat with me and I, I had to think about it, you know, and it, it's because I was interested in it. They were, it was a curiosity for me. I didn't necessarily think that um, of all these, you know, the immediate thing where you can have all this homework assignment and everything. But it just tells me that I love a challenge. I love to work hard. And um, I, I think it served me well. 
And I think if, if, if young people can or, or women are holding back because they're afraid or you know, whatever, just, just go for it. Give yourself a chance. And if you fail, well, that's okay. You've learned a lot. Believe me, I have um, stumbled many times, um, but I always get up and give it another try um, because I don't like to fail. So I always want to try to succeed. <laughs> another try. <laughs> End on a good note. <laughs> Says an engineer, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, what's, what's one more trial? What's one more That's test? That's right. Exactly. <laughs> Alice, did you always know when you were taking these classes, like at the time, did you see the dots connecting? And, and I guess what I mean by that is you were taking these classes that you were curious about or sounded interesting and maybe they were challenging and you felt like you were sort of drawn in, but did you know like what was starting to form, I guess, like, were you like, I want to do this thing. Like, I want to, I want to send spacecraft into space. I want to be a part of that. Or was it, did it come together differently for you? Uh, gosh, um, growing up, I, and I still do, I have so many interests. Um, so for me. <laughs> Amen, Alice. Amen. <laughs> for me, um, I was sort of led by my heart. Oh, this looks really cool. I want to give it a try. And so I really, I, at, at a young age, I was definitely influenced by the space program. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to be was an astronaut. Of course, that changed over time, and that's okay. But I also wanted to be um, a chemist or, you know, maybe a musician. I mean, I can... I, I don't know how many different things that I thought I might want to be. And it was really hard to choose. So I would say that my heart kind of led me to these different classes, these disciplines that I followed. And it wasn't until, you know, probably in my, gosh, almost 30s, maybe, where I really found the path that really um, spoke to spoke to my heart. And so I think the word of advice there is if someone is stressing about going to college and not knowing exactly what they want to do, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Don't stress about it. You know, follow your heart. Take those things that are of interest to you and it'll all work out. I wish you were there for me in like high school and college age because I felt like the pressure was, you know, by junior year to like, you, right. you need to know what you're going to be doing. And I, I felt like, you know, I went the accounting and finance route um, initially. And I think maybe it's also being a first generation college student. It just seemed like good, bad, or good, bad, or ugly. There's always work as an accountant. Yeah, and it seemed like yeah. a safe choice. But then I feel like it's been interesting because right now as we talk, I'm about a year into like a major transition. And so like the first 10 years of my career were finance and accounting and process-based thinking and numbers and analysis and that kind of stuff, which is really appealing to my brain. But then I felt like I was sort of divorced from like the, the people side of things and just, you know, a, a really sad period of loss for me and, you know, my health sort of like going down with that mm. forced me to kind of, 
you know, really just get myself back together. And when I came out of that, people around me were like, how did you put yourself back together? You seem so happy and healthy again. <laughs> what, what happened? And then, you know, it was also one of those reflection points where I was like, do I want to stay on this trajectory for the rest of my life? And the answer was no, but what do I do? And then I found myself applying a lot of those same skills as a health and lifestyle strategist. And so working with women and digging into problems and what tool can we match to what? And so it was a lot of that first part. And then the second part became focused on really understanding how people work more and being able to talk to people and how can you communicate with people in a way to, to get as close to understanding what they're experiencing so you can be helpful as sort of a coach on the side. And then it was sort of that for 10 years. And now like I'm in the middle of, I think, combining both like the, the heavy process and analysis side and the, and the problem solving with like the people aspect. And now I find myself, you know, over the last year going back to school and, you know, sort of a mix of immersion programs and boot camps and online classes to go into user experience design. So doing like data and analysis, but actually caring about what people need in the process. So I, I, I feel like as that was a long way of saying, like, really, like, I can't imagine had I bumped into someone like you when I was like 19 years old, would, would I not have had to make such like decade long iterations in my career to sort of get to a place that feels like a more natural place on the spectrum for me. Um, yeah. And I think it's awesome that you are, are taking that leap of faith and making those changes. Um, but I think that also in our lives, we evolve. And what I mean by that is that what holds our interest at 19 may be very different at 30 and at 40. And I think that, um, you know, thinking of choosing a career that's going to have to last you a lifetime, which is what we were told when we started college, is, is you know, unrealistic um, because we're going to change in that time period. So I think that, you know, doing just what you did is probably the way to go. Listen to what you need and what you, you know, interests you at the time. And then, you know, make that change later on if you find that it's not satisfying or not speaking to your inner self. I think that there's a lot of pressure put on young people to decide when they're 19 or 20, their life course. And it's, I don't know of anybody that can do that. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny to hear you say that. I guess from the outside looking in at your career, right? Like I see like you're someone who's been a mom for 20 years, correct? Yeah, something like, like that. Probably a little longer, but <laughs> how <Or no>. have, <laughs> Yeah, but how have you balanced that personal evolution? with like you've at least had the same title has the has the job changed right like as you've grown has the has the job changed or what does that look like um yeah so I take that back as a mom yeah so since uh 2002 so 
you're right, almost 20 years, which is really, really hard for me to fathom that I've been doing this for that long. You know, that's a really good question. Um, the nature of this mission, New Horizons, is that it is constantly changing. And I think that is what keeps me interested and challenged. Um, we are constantly uh, having to deal with lower and lower power levels on the spacecraft, which has um, implications to what kind of things we can have on on the spacecraft and taking data. Right now we're looking at changing some software on board the spacecraft. We're trying to figure out how many observations we have left that we can do on the spacecraft and how to maximize that. So there's all these challenges that are still giving me, I guess, keeping me interested in this project. But you're right, there are things that I, you know, think about, say, gosh, it would be kind of cool to do this. You know, so, so maybe that's in my future. I'm not so sure. I, I, I keep thinking that I'll know when is a good time to step away. And so far, I haven't felt that need to step away from this project. This is going to sound like a weird question, but I feel like one of the first sentences you uttered when we started talking today is, you know, part of your role is keeping the spacecraft healthy and, and checking its activities. And that to me sounds like such a, like a literal mom thing, right? <laughs> How do you think of this spacecraft? I mean, is it kind of like your baby at this point? Probably more like a teenager, young adult. Um, it was definitely <laughs> a baby <laughs> when we launched it. Yes, uh, I think all of us on the team, um, we have been connected to this spacecraft for a really long time, and it's like an extension of ourselves. So you'll you'll hear us say things that sound like we're talking about a person. Yeah, so it is. It's a, a definitely um, a relationship. Uh, with the spacecraft. I mean, you, you can imagine how the Voyager operators or ops team feels about their spacecraft um, because they've been, um, you know, piloting those spacecraft for, gosh, since the late 70s, early 80s. Um, wow. It's, it's amazing. I mean, and, and the loss that you feel when you lose a spacecraft, you saw that with the Cassini team. Um, mm -hmm. I think that mission was launched in 97. So, you know, you do feel that connection and, and you don't think of it as just a piece of hardware or a resistor or, you know, a camera. You know, it really is an extension of ourselves. It allows us to go out and explore these places that we wouldn't normally be able to do. And so, you know, it's our eyes and um, gives us that view of the universe that we couldn't other, otherwise have. Does that shift then, like, is it rare for turnover in these projects? Like when you get to a point in your career, like you're in, you know, where you're sort of supervising mission operations, like, does that, like, do you not see as much in terms of turnover? Like, do people stay because there is this almost emotional investment in it as well. 
Um, yes, I, I do believe that is true, why we have many of the same team members that we had when we were developing the spacecraft. Um, there's been a few people that have left the team for various reasons, but, you know, New Horizons is special. It is the first spacecraft to go to see Pluto up close. And when you have that chance, that's really once in a lifetime chance to do something and to be involved in something like that. So there is that connection. So we have people that may only be supporting the program 10% or 30% of their time, but that's important to them that they maintain that connection. And that is a huge benefit to the team because we have all that knowledge that they bring with them over these many, many years of being part of the team. And um, it's, it's huge. It really is. And Alice, as I think about the longevity of your career, it makes, it makes me think of a, of a couple of things. Because this is a show really about navigating bullshit and hopefully sidestepping burnout. And I guess it feels like to me there might be sort of like two different viewpoints right? There's, I think of when I was doing the research, and I, I think we touched on it a little, there was July 4th, 2015, which is kind of, maybe we should start there. Maybe instead of cluttering this up, let's start there. There was what happened on July 4th, 2015. Can you talk about that day? Because you weren't just, you know, barbecuing with friends and family that day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Yeah. July 4th, 2015, that was our first opportunity to send up that nine-day set of commands or instructions that the spacecraft was going to use to image the Pluto system. That command set or observation period started on July 7th, and it continued until July 16th with the closest approach on July 14th. And July 4th was the first opportunity for us to send it up because this command set of instructions was so large that it took up so much of the memory that we had to wait until enough of that memory was cleared from the spacecraft before it would fit. And at this point, um, the round, the one-way light times, the amount of time it would take for uh, instructions from Earth to get to the spacecraft was a little bit less than four and a half hours. And then it was another four and a half hours for the spacecraft to send back um, the acknowledgement that it had received each of those commands that we had sent. So we started uploading those commands, uplinking or sending those commands to the spacecraft about 4.30 in the morning on July 4th. And a round trip light time later, or the amount of time it would take before we start to receive information from the spacecraft, happened to be about one o'clock in the afternoon. So I should mention that when we start sending the commands up to the spacecraft, it takes two hours for us to send all those commands up to the spacecraft because the amount of commands was so huge. So on the ground, fast forward to one o'clock in the afternoon, and we're watching the spacecraft receive 
all those commands. Now, that is kind of a nebulous term because what we are actually seeing on Earth is something that the spacecraft was doing four and a half hours earlier. We're just now getting that information on Earth. About halfway through that two-hour period, we lost communication with the spacecraft. Total silence. What happens in that moment? Like, what do you feel? What, how are you reacting? So you start to get those knots in your stomach. There were probably five of us in the Mission Operations Center. We start checking everything on the ground system to make sure that nothing has gone out of spec. We asked our uh, deep space network people, the people that are running the antenna that we're using on the ground to make sure that everything is properly configured uh, for receiving their communication. And everything is coming back fine. And at that point is when we start to realize that we're experiencing a problem on the spacecraft. That has to break your heart, or are you still like engineer mode at that point? At that point, I think we were in human mode. I myself, I I was in disbelief um, because we had spent since 2008 developing and testing and verifying this nine-day set of commands to make sure it was perfect, that there was nothing in there that would cause any problem on the spacecraft. That's a really long time to be, you know, preparing for this. Um, and part of, you know, we, we dealt with abnormal conditions on the spacecraft before. So we do have our checklists. We have that, um, you know, knowledge base of previous, how we solve things previously. Um, but at that point, I realized that... Um, I needed to take a moment for myself Um, because as a leader, my belief, you need to be calm on the outside. You need to have a steady voice. Um, And this is because you need to reassure your team that everything is in control. Um, that we know how we're going to solve this problem. We may not know the exact way to solve it, but we know that our process is going to get us through. So you have to have that demeanor. So, but at that state, I I wasn't. I, I admit, I, <laughs> you're I, like, you know, I was like, oh God, you know. So I took that moment for myself, and um, you know, that ten seconds. It probably seemed like a long time where I just stood there. Um, You know, I I said a little prayer and I I said, okay, we're going to do our absolute best. um, And then the rest is in someone else's hands, in God's hands. Because that's all we could do, you know, pull out all the stops. So at that point, I refocused. went down our, our, what we normally do in in situations like that or like this, um, which is, you know, making sure we we call our managers and let them know what is going on. 
I know I've heard on the science side when they got the message that we had lost communication with the spacecraft, many of them had thought that that was the end, that the spacecraft had hit something because this is an area of our solar system that we've never been to before. We were looking as we approached the Pluto system for any kind of hazards that might be there, but there's a limit to our detectability on, on the particle size. And anything the size of a grain of rice could cause catastrophic damage. So the scientists went into that mode because I totally understand that. On the engineering side, we were still chasing down all the things that we could chase down to make sure that um, it wasn't this problem or it wasn't that problem. And we had not yet come to that. We were still working through that. And um, about, um, I would say, an hour later, we had at least something that we were going to try to see if we could regain that signal. And um, so we lost contact with the spacecraft at 1.54 p.m. Eastern Time. And um, we reconfigured the ground station to accept um, a signal from the spacecraft had it gone into this other operational mode. And at 3.11 p.m. or 77 minutes later, we locked up to that signal. And you can't imagine what joy, what relief, you know, what huge sigh of relief that we felt. But that quickly <laughs> became an oh shit moment. Like, all right, we have a fairly good idea of what's going on, but it's July 4th, it's the afternoon of July 4th. We have a round trip light time of almost nine hours, and this sequence, the set of commands, this is supposed to start on July 7th. That gives us less than three days to fix the spacecraft that's three billion miles from Earth. And so that was our next focus. That has to be um, like so awesome and then disheartening all at the same time, <laughs> right? Because it's such a moment yes. of oh shit, okay, it's back online. Oh shit, the bigger problem is now we're going to miss that window. This window yes. that you worked like for practically a decade to, to get to. And like everything was fine until three days before. Yes. yes. Alice, what are the lessons in all of this? Because I feel like there are probably, you could write a book full. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, lessons. Um, Communication. You need to have excellent communication. Um, trust. You need to trust the expertise of your team members. You need to listen to that expertise. You need to remove the prejudices in your mind about which way, which action should be taken. You need to remove all that and listen with an open mind before you come to a decision. Respect. You need to make sure that everybody on the team is respected. And if not, you need to take care of it quickly. And I think humility. Each of us has our expertise. 
but not one person has all that expertise. You need to rely upon the team and the strength of the team to get through things like this. Alice, as you talk about humility, and this is something I think about like more and more as I get older, like how do you not know what you don't know? Right? Like, I'm not even sure what the question is. Maybe, maybe I'll just let you react to that. For me, again, it's pushing away any preconceived notion that I have and really, really, truly listening to all the input that I'm getting, asking lots of questions. Um, at work, you know, people are happy to answer all my questions. At home, you know, it's a different story. <laughs> Oh, I totally know. My husband is hit with like 10,000 questions a day. It's just like, can't you take this to someone else? Like, I think he's so glad that I'm, I'm in the middle of an HR process for a, a design role. And I think he's super excited that I will stop like burning his ears. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think it's that, that, um, that curiosity, that wanting to know, that... Uh, um, tracking down all those little things that are tickling the back of your mind when you hear somebody say something and you know that you don't understand it all. Um, you know, my team is really good at pushing back at me. And sometimes it's frustrating, but really, truly, it's um, what I need them to do. I think that um, if what you say is is always met with no opposition, then it's really hard to know where those edges are. Um, so I think it's, it's um, that constant questioning, that reevaluation. For me, it's a lot of self-evaluation. You know, you get into a situation and maybe you have this feeling it didn't go exactly how you wanted it to go, or you see a look on somebody's face like, you know, uh, I wonder what I said. Um, and then, taking those things that you learn from that self-evaluation and, and incorporating them back into um, yourself so that you don't do that again. So I, I think it's a lot of that. It's, it's not taking, I hate to say it, but not taking yourself so seriously that you think you're an expert because things are constantly changing. Um, and I think that that's maybe a little bit of how I know um, when I need to step back and, and say I'm not right. So I want to try to bounce this back to make sure I'm understanding you. It sounds like when you experience a sense of curiosity, especially as you're listening to others with different expertise or perspective, that's a sign for you that it might be something new for you, or you might be entering into uncharted intellectual territory. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and it and it could be just one little word, you know, that I can't think of an example right now, but it could just be one little word that someone says that really changes your whole perspective. Like, I thought I understood what the process is, but they just said something that makes me question 
you know, do I really understand that? And, and then, you know, poke at that a little bit more to make sure. Got it. And then what I also heard was that when others are pushing back on you, I guess maybe help define what you mean by pushing back on you. Because it sounds like that gives you a sense of an edge as well. (laughs) Yeah, so so I had um, my team, my mission operations team, um, were not always in agreement. And um, they are very good at um, challenging me when I make a call that they don't agree with. And so that's what I mean when I, I said pushing back. So they challenge me to defend my position and to understand where they're coming from. This is great because they have a perspective that I don't have. They are doing a job that I'm not intimately involved in. I know what they do on a you know high level, but I'm not down into the nitty gritty. And from my point of view, they may not know the management pressure that I'm getting or the big picture that I may have that they don't have. And so when, um, you know, this pushback or challenge occurs, we both learn. And many times it's not that you're right, I'm wrong, or vice versa. It's, ah, we can come up with a better solution that's, um, that addresses the, the things that we are you know, challenging each other over. I almost picture it like a moving Venn diagram, right? Like you have all this information <laughs> in one circle, they have all this information. And like when you, when you start the conversation or when they're pushing back, it's like just a little bit of those circles is overlapping. But then as more info comes out, it's sort of like the two circles sliding over each other more, yeah, right? That, that's what you want. You want consensus. It's much better to have consensus than a compromise. Yes, yes. And I I can only imagine because of the diversity of the team, like in terms of expertise, because of just the volume of people and their input and involvement in this situation, I imagine these things kind of come up. And I I guess going back to the original fork in the road of the longevity of your career, like how have you had such a long successful career doing what you're doing right like i imagine just you know from the perspective of a newbie designer like the amount of creative tension just inherent in that process is massive and then you're also in probably a incredibly bureaucratic environment as well and like also a lot of like high profile kind of like public aspect to this work. Like how do you survive that crucible and, and continue to thrive and not burn out? I think it's important to make sure you take time for yourself and to step back um, when you need to step back. So for me, when I have particularly challenging thing that I need to address, I don't feel that I'm in the right mindset then I will, I will put that off because I, I know my, I trust that I know myself. And I think that's part of it. I also enjoy working with the people that I work with. They're some of the brightest, most intelligent people that I've ever experienced. And so having conversations with them is 
is a joy. It's, it's extremely interesting and um, really spurs me to be a better person. And I think this helps also to maintain um, this focus on this project for, for so long. Got it. So it sounds like, I mean, just the culture and the people like really support being able to to navigate all of the smaller day-to-day things or even the, you know, oh shit, July 4th moments. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Alice, this has been so fantastic to hear your perspective and learn from you today. You know, I, I, I think being able to hear how different women in different roles handle or look at problems is just so important and impactful. Like I think these conversations, and hopefully the listeners agree that these are meaningful conversations. And so far the feedback has been good. Um, (laughs) Stepping back from all of the little nooks and crannies that we've explored today, what do you most want the Vital Core Salam listeners to know or take away from our conversation today? I hope that your listeners will take away a sentiment that don't sell yourself short. Um, be on the lookout for obstacles that you've placed in front of yourself and remove them. That at least you can control. Take a chance, step out of your comfort zone. And um, when you're presented with an obstacle or a challenge, look at it in a positive light. Look at it as an opportunity to learn something new and to add to your experience. Alice, thank you so much. I feel like that is such a great summary and such solid advice, but I think so much more meaningful because it's coming from someone who clearly has been walking their talk, if not running their talk, (laughs) for a long time. Um, Kara, this has been great. I've certainly enjoyed um, speaking with you, and um, I admire you for taking on this venue. I mean, it's very impactful, and I very much appreciate your invitation to have me on your salon. Hey everyone, it's Kara again. Thank you so much for tuning in and for sticking around until the very end. As always, you can find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over at levitalcoursalon.com. L-E, vital, C-O-R-P-S, salon.com. There's also a really important ask I have related to this episode. If you have a girl or a young woman in your life, please tell her about Alice. Tell her that you listen to this podcast. Let's help her understand that APL and NASA and places like that all have jobs for her too. And if you're a mom trying to keep some young ones busy this summer while you're trying to maybe get some remote work done from home, Let me tell you, there's a ton of kid-friendly resources on both APL and NASA's site that talks about like these big, complicated space missions like Alice and I were talking about, but in really simple language. So dig in. Lots of resources out there and, and really fun stuff. And as always, I want to thank you for listening. 
I want to thank Alice for being on the show. I want to thank my producer, Craig Snyder, my virtual assistant, Darlene Victoria, and Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the theme song. And don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.